The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege we have as to gather together in this country with the freedoms that we have to worship you and study your word. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet, that it illuminates every category of thought that we have. Father, we pray that we would be responsive to its guidance and direction, that under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we might fully understand how these things that we study apply to our, our own lives, that you would challenge us with these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed Dan last week. The reports I got were good. I wanted to let you know that we have a bit of a, uh, I have a strategy behind what I'm doing with Dan. Uh, they don't teach the style of teaching that we utilize here in seminary. So if he's going to learn how to really communicate and teach the Word other than this sort of homiletical three points in a poem, sort of shallow, devo emotional, devotional kind of stuff that tends to come out of the seminary pastoral ministry departments, uh, he's going to have to have a little personal instruction. So one of the things that I'm doing in terms of the strategy is to teach him to teach basics. Every pastor has to be able to do certain things just off the top of his head. You need to be able to communicate all the basic doctrines. You need to have it down. You need to know the, mem the, the basic key verses, central passages involved in all of these things. Have them memorized. Be ready to come up with uh, passages on salvation, on spiritual life, faith rest drill, just off the top of your head. So I am drilling him on these things, and I am giving him instructions and working with him and what he teaches. I have him uh, put together an outline and email that to me, and I go over that and put in some suggestions and everything all the way along the way. So there's a strategy to this. So when he comes uh, that we're accomplishing certain things, I haven't really taught the basics a whole lot here, so he's going to be teaching basics, and that accomplishes two things. It covers the basics for the congregation, and it also gives him the opportunity to get those under his belt and work more on the area of presentation and delivery and organization of material than trying to go out and develop new stuff. I also try to pick things that he is studying that relate somewhat to what he's doing in the classroom so that he's not having to go out and generate a whole lot of extra new material and it can help him learn the process of taking the academically oriented material in the classroom and then putting it together in terms of a, of a teaching lesson. So uh, it'll be a while before Dan's back. I don't plan on being gone on another Sunday for quite some time, so we won't see him back here for a while. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. And we will continue today in verse 6 our study of the doctrine of giving. You know, people seem to have a lot of odd ideas about giving and money in the Christian life. Three boys were in the schoolyard one day bragging about their fathers. The first boy said, My dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a poem, and they give him $50. second boy says, That's nothing. My dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a song, and they give him $100. The third boy said, I got you both beat. My dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a sermon. And it takes eight people to collect all the money. Galatians 6.6 6 says, And let the one who has taught the Word share all good things with him who teaches. The one who has taught the Word is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who is in the congregation and is learning the Word. Now, the, we, as we have studied, it's been two weeks now since we've been in this passage, so we'll do a little review to bring our thinking back to where we've been. The word that is used here for teaching 
is the Greek word katekeo, from which we get the English word catechism, which is a much more precise word for teaching than simply didaskalos. Didaskalos is the teacher, didasko is the verb, and that refers to just instruction. Whereas katekeo has to do with detailed, systematic instruction. What we call the ICE method, I for isagogic, C for categories, and E for exegesis. And that is a method that is uh, rarely taught today. In fact, what you have is more of an exercise in, in uh, rhetoric and public speaking than really detailed instruction in the Word of God. But the Scripture here, what the Apostle Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the one who is the recipient of this type of teaching, a categorical teaching of the Word of God, should share all good things. The word there is agathos, meaning things of intrinsic value and, and specifies the fact that the congregation is to trade in a sort of a barter system. They trade material goods, including financial support, for the pastor-teacher who is feeding them spiritually. And that led us to the doctrine of giving. First of all, we reviewed the doctrine of tithing, covered that, where we saw that tithing is not synonymous with giving. This is a misnomer. Many churches use that. When I was in Houston uh, Friday, or I guess it was Thursday night, I was out with some friends. And uh, that was this last Thursday night. I, had to, I was down Thanksgiving, and I had to leave again and fly down there and do a, do, perform a funeral service Friday. So I feel a little under, a little back and forth like a yo-yo, back and forth from Connecticut to Texas. That's just not your daily commute. <laughs> so it's been... A, Kind of a rugged week, but uh, we were we were visiting together with some some or I was visiting with some friends, and they had um, uh, recently gone through a situation where uh, his uh, his mother, the man's mother, had passed away, and she was a member of a Methodist church, and he was telling me about a letter that her church, a large Methodist church down in the Houston area, had sent out detailing it didn't list names, but it detailed how many people that twenty five people in the congregation have increased their tithe this year. And, you know, 75 have decreased their tithe this year. And how many people were tithing? But they were using the word tithing in that letter as synonymous to giving because you, how can you increase your 10%? 10% is 10%, whether you're talking about 10% of 25,000 or 10% of 100,000, 10% is 10%. So it's a, a misnomer and just shows how I think idiotic most churches are in the way they use, use a lot of terminology. They never really check the definitions. Tithe is from an old English word that means 10%. That's what it means. 10% is 10%. You can't increase 10%. Can you? Just absurd. Anyway, in the Old Testament, tithing refers to mandatory uh, giving under the Mosaic Law. It was comparable to a national income tax. There wasn't simply one tithe. There were three tithes. Two came every year. One was every third year. They were designed, first of all, to support the bureaucracy in the theocracy. Israel is a theocratic government under the Mosaic Law. God is the executive branch, and it was administered through the priests and Levites. And so the tithe was designed to support the priests and Levites. There was a second tithe that was related to a national celebration every year of the grace of God, and then the tithe that came every, every three years was designed to support the widows and orphans and the impoverished in the nation. We saw that there was also a second category of giving in the Old Testament, and that was the free will giving, and that is uh, the same principle of grace giving that we find in the New Testament. And that's what goes on. You still have the same two categories of giving, as you might say, although I don't like to use that word in reference to income tax. But that's basically what, what we have. You had income tax, and then they had free will giving to the temple, and we still have the same thing. We have our income tax that we give for the support of the national entity, and then we have free will giving for the support of the local church. And the same thing continues. And the principle in the New Testament is related to grace. So we covered the doctrine of tithing and saw that that had to do with uh, the national tax system in Israel under the Mosaic Law. 
and is not related at all to the church age, period. The church age, the church is a different entity than Israel. Israel was a national government, a nation, and the tithe was mandatory for all citizens, believer and unbeliever, and had no spiritual impact. Whereas the doctrine of grace giving or free will giving was for believers and follows the principle of grace. Now that's the principle in the New Testament. Last time we covered several principles related to grace giving, which I will review briefly so that we're back on the same sheet of music. First of all, we saw the giving giving related to the spiritual life of the believer has always been based on grace. Even in the Old Testament, spiritual life giving was always related to grace, Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. In the Old Testament, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 in the New Testament. Always based on grace. The definition, point number two, definition for giving. Giving in the spiritual life is an expression of our worship to God to commemorate His grace in our life. It is an expression of our worship to God to commemorate His grace in our life. So it is just as much a part of worship as studying the Word of God. Point number three. Giving in the church age is related to our position as a royal priest. We are both both royal ambassadors and royal priests in the royal family of God, and as such we have certain obligations. Our role as ambassadors is related to uh, witnessing and communicating uh, God's will in uh, evangelism, administration of the local church, mission field organization, and work in Christian service or in Sunday school, that type of thing. In uh, the royal priesthood, this relates to prayer, giving, learning, and applying Bible doctrine and worshiping God both privately and corporately as a body of Christ. So giving is part of our responsibility as royal priests. Fourth, we saw that the first obligation in terms of our giving is to financially support our source of spiritual sustenance. That's the priority. Many times people have other responsibilities. They may or may not give through the local church. They may support a a missionary or missionaries out on the field. They may have uh, different areas of, of giving for different purposes, but the primary responsibility is towards the local church, as seen here in our passage, Galatians 6, 6. Point number five, failure to give indicates a failure to understand the principles of grace and the doctrine of the faith rest drill. Giving is related to trusting God for our, all of our resources and is a response to his, his grace in our lives, recognizing that he has given us everything that we have. And point number six, the issue in grace giving is motivation, not the amount. God is not concerned about the amount, but our motivation in response to His grace in our lives. And that takes us to what is the central passage in the New Testament for giving in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. So let's turn there, and we will spend the majority of our time this morning going through these two chapters. Obviously, we don't have the time to exegete every single phrase in these two chapters but I want to cover them as a summary to understand the principles of giving for the spiritual life. Paul, at this time, when he writes the Corinthian church, is not uh, being, he's not supported by the Corinthian church, and the Corinthians were just getting to the point of where they were beginning to uh, apply the principles of giving in their life. Remember, the Corinthian church was perhaps the most messed up, spiritually uh, retarded group of believers in the Old Testament, I mean in the New Testament. It always amazes me how certain people want to go to Corinthians and talk about uh, the, the gift of tongues or baptism of the Holy Spirit as some sign of super spirituality. And the only group that made an issue out of it in the whole New Testament was the most screwed up, backward, carnal bunch of believers in, the, in uh, New Testament times, they, they were always having problems and gave nothing but heartache, it seems, to the Apostle Paul. But they were finally beginning to get their, some of their act together. 
And Paul is responding to that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and is encouraging them to, to give even more and to be more uh, consistent in the application of giving to their spiritual life. Beginning in verse 8, our chapter 8, verse 1, we see the first principle that giving is a part of every believer's worship of God and is based on personal response to the grace of God. So it's part of our worship of God and is in response to the grace of God. Verse 1, Paul says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. So he is going to encourage the Corinthian congregation with an example from the believers in a congregation up in Macedonia. Macedonia was in northern Greece, and this area had been particularly uh, hard hit in recent years by uh, both the oppression of the Roman Empire, heavy taxation, and some famine. So it was not a very wealthy area. The people did not have a whole lot. And yet, Paul is going to use them as an example for giving. So often people want to rationalize giving because they say, well, I just don't have much. I can barely feed my family. I can barely meet my obligations. And yet, this is exactly the kind of congregation that the Apostle Paul uses as an example for giving. We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Now, the interesting thing that is happening here is that Paul is, is uh, encouraging the Corinthians, just for a little background, Paul's encouraging the Corinthians to lay aside on a weekly basis, the first of every week, they are to set aside a certain amount of money, and then when Titus would come through, he would collect that money, and all of this money was to go back to Jerusalem because the Jews in Israel were going through a famine at that time, and they needed some support, financial assistance, to be able to make it through this time of economic depression. They were going through the fourth cycle of discipline in preparation for the fifth cycle, which was going to come about in 70 A.D. when the nation uh, would be destroyed by the Roman army. Now, there was always an antagonism, a certain antagonism, between Gentiles and Jews. And yet Paul is saying that our responsibilities as believers was to rise above uh, any kind of uh, ethnic antagonism and he uses uh, rise above any kind of ethnic antagonism and rise above any kind of economic um, problems that we might face. And so he goes to the Macedonian church to be there uh, to be this example. They gave freely. They gave generously. They gave as a response to the grace of God. And their gift, the giving that they manifested in Macedonia, was not viewed as a bribe to God. They weren't trading God. God, I'll give you so much money and I know you'll bless me. They weren't trying to uh, get God to make them prosperous because they were giving a certain amount of money. Their giving was a reflection of how well they understood grace. I think that is a challenging concept, that our giving is to reflect our understanding of grace. Their generosity, the generosity of this church in Macedonia was so phenomenal that Paul mentions it frequently in the New Testament as an example to all believers of giving. He mentions it in Acts 24:17, in Romans 15:25 to 28, in 1 Corinthians 16:1 through 5 and in Galatians 2:10. So Paul makes it a point again and again to use the generosity of the Macedonians as a standard as an example to challenge other believers in the arena of giving. So point number one, from verse one, we see that giving is a part of every believer's uh, worship of God in response to the grace of God. Point number two, we see that grace giving is not related to the depth of finances in the bank account, but is related to the depth of gratitude in the believer's soul. It's not related to how much you have in your bank account, but how much doctrine you have in your soul. Verse two that in great ordeal of affliction, in other words, as they were going through a lot of of, uh, adversity, both because of the oppression of the uh, Roman government in that area, as well as financial adversity because of, of a recession in northern Greece, 
They were going through a tremendous amount of, of affliction. They were suffering. They, they were going through a, a financial recession. They were going through physical suffering. They didn't have a whole lot. And yet, Paul says, their abundance of joy, notice how he contrasts this, their abundance of joy, inner happiness in the soul, as a result of their maturity in the Word, and their deep poverty, their deep financial poverty, overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. It did not matter to the Macedonians how little they had or how limited their resources were. They were going to give above and beyond that because of their response to the grace of God in their life. The third point in giving in this chapter is found in verse 3. The principle in grace giving is not a mandated percentage, but abundant generosity. It's not a mandated percentage, but abundant generosity. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they were not rationalizing their finances. They gave according to their ability and beyond their ability They gave of their own accord. It was free will. It was not a mandated legalistic system. I've heard of churches going so far as to challenge the members of the congregation to go out and take a second mortgage on their home so that they can double, triple, and quadruple tithe so that they can build a brand new church building. That won't ever happen here. Sometimes it's nice and comfortable when you can operate on legalism and you get your bills paid, but... That has nothing to do with the spiritual life, and it has nothing to do with trusting God. It's trusting a system, and it's not trusting the grace of God. God is the one who provides. Just as God provides the hearers, God provides the resources. And my policy has always been that if people are truly positive to the Word of God, and they are responding to what God is doing in their life correctly, then that will manifest itself in giving. Those in the congregation and those who are in the tape ministry will give. If they don't, then nobody's responding, nobody's positive, and shut down the ministry and move on to uh, more fertile fields. So God always provides the hearers, and God always provides the finances in order to take care of the ministry. So the principle in grace giving is based not on a percentage, but on generosity. They gave above and beyond their ability. And notice in verse 4, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participating in the support of the saints. They saw giving as a privilege of supporting the believers in Jerusalem. So that is verse uh, point 4, rather. Grace giving is a privilege, not a burden. Now, there are a couple of interesting things in the Greek in verse 4. Begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation. Now, when we look at this in the Greek, the word favor is this word, charis. C-H-A-R-I-S, which is the word for grace. They understood that it was a grace operation and that it was directly in response to the grace of God in their lives. See, we get the word grace from the Latin word gratis, which, has to, which is also the root not only for grace, but also for the concept of gratitude. And so this shows the relationship here that we see in the Greek that participating in giving is both a gracious act and the response to grace and therefore is directly related to our understanding and appreciation of what God has done in our lives. The more we study God's Word, the more we study salvation, the more we realize all that God has done for us in salvation and all that He has provided for us in the spiritual life, the more that is to impact us and, and in terms of gratitude, it builds capacity in the soul. And so our giving is always related to the capacity that we have in the soul related to grace orientation. And this causes us to realize the fourth principle, that grace giving is a privilege and not a burden. 
Fifth point, grace giving is preceded by positive volition to Scripture and spiritual growth. Giving is not a means to spiritual growth, but is a result of spiritual growth. Look at verse 5. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Notice the priority. First, they made their relationship with the Lord the priority. They gave themselves to the Lord indicates their commitment to doctrine. First, they gave themselves to the Lord and they learned doctrine. And as they grew spiritually, they developed capacity in the soul and they gave as a result of their spiritual growth. Remember, the ministries related to our royal priesthood, giving, uh, prayer, learning the Word of God, are not are the results, application of the Word of God, are results of spiritual growth. They're not the cause of spiritual growth. So many people think, well, I'll grow spiritually if I get involved in a prayer group, if I get involved in some kind of discipleship group, if I get involved in this program or that program, if I go to church. They're just. I, I'm always amazed how many people get, get the idea that you hear them say, well, so-and-so would just do better if they would go to church. Like, where? Any church. Just somehow be involved in in the, the building with other people, that somehow this is going to have uh, some impact in improving their life and making them a better person. But the Scripture makes it clear that, that these things do not contribute to spiritual growth. They are the result of spiritual growth. Our prayer life, our giving, all of this is the consequence, not the cause, of spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is caused by learning the Word of God under the filling of the Holy Spirit and then applying the Word of God. So we see this point in terms of their priority in verse 5. Then point 6, we'll skip down to verse 9. The pattern for grace-giving is the sacrificial generosity of Jesus Christ on the cross. Verse 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. The pattern is the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to earth, the second per, eternal second person of the Trinity, who was incarnate, born of a virgin, came to the earth for one purpose, and that was to go to the cross to die as our substitute. There on the cross, God the Father imputed to him all the sins of human history. So, though he was rich, he had everything. The God of the universe, the psalmist says, God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And so he gave up all of that. He restricted all that he had in terms of his divine essence. He willingly restricted that in order to become true humanity and to go to the cross, so that we, by means of His sacrifice, would then be rich. We would be given all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. The assets that God has given each of us as church-age believers goes beyond anything we can ever imagine. So we learn from this that the pattern for grace-giving is the pattern of God the Father's giving God the Son for our salvation. It was sacrificial, and it was generous, and it went far beyond the need. It was more than sufficient. Verse 9. Point number 7. Giving is done under the principle of proportionality and responsibility. And this is in verses 11 through 15. Giving is to be conducted under the principle of proportionality and responsibility. It's not based upon a set percentage. Verse 11. But now finish doing it also. Apparently the Corinthian church had started the procedure where they had been collecting money to send to the believers in Israel and they had stopped. So Paul is having to challenge them to get started again. Every now and then it's necessary for a pastor to sort of prod the sheep into giving and remember their responsibilities. I don't do that very often. This is it for probably a couple of years. So pay attention. 
I always hate talking about money. But now finish doing it also, that just as there was the readiness to desire, in other words, their initial uh, enthusiasm to uh, take up a collection, just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, that is, if your desire is there, your motivation is correct, it is acceptable according to what a man has, not according to what he does not have. This is the principle of responsibility. I was amazed last year. I was teaching in a church, and they collected a, an offering. And in the midst of that offering, uh, which was not done according to the principles that I would normally do it, the uh, pastor who was collecting the offering said, Now, those of you who are writing checks, make sure that they're written on a solid bank account. We don't want any checks to bounce. And the reason, he said, which just amazed me, he said, and he was pastor of a very large church in Southern California, he said, the reason we don't want you writing any bad checks, don't get motivated by guilt and think you're going to impress somebody by pledging a large amount and then writing a rubber check. In the, the previous month, his church had to pay, because in California, apparently, the banks are not only charging the person who writes the bad check uh, a bad check fee, If you deposit a bad check in your account, you're getting charged a $10 or $20 fee as well. And that church had, in the previous month, his home church, had had to pay over $5,000 in bad check fees from all the people in the congregation who had written bad checks. See, that's what happens when you use a little guilt motivation to get people to give is they they decide they're going to impress somebody and they're going to pledge a certain amount and then they write a check for it and they can't cover it. So giving should be done responsibly. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 1, that you're to lay aside at the first of the week. One of the things I used to do, I don't do it so much anymore, when we don't have the opportunity around here a lot, but I used to do a lot of premarital counseling. And uh, I kind of got away from that, but... One of the things I would have couples do is sit down and make a budget. And I was amazed at how many couples, two, three months out from getting married, had never even thought about how they were going to spend their money. And money is one of the greatest areas of disagreement and fighting and argument in any marriage. And yet they have no concept. And I'm amazed how many people, how many people just don't operate on a budget. The money just comes in and they spend it. And they have no plan, no rhyme, no reason to how they spend their money. And the whole point that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 16 and here is that you need to think about how you spend your money. You need to prioritize it. You know you have certain things you have to spend every month. You need to pay your mortgage. You need to pay your rent. You need to pay your uh, utility bills and a couple of other things that are absolutes and you can't get away from. And part of that should be a decision is part of your priesthood how much you're going to give to the local church and how much you should give to the Lord's work, whatever that may be. And then everything else comes after that. That is the priority, is those obligations. And you should set down every year what your financial goals are for the year. Uh, this seems pretty basic to some people. I had a pastor one time every year conducted a financial seminar, and there were more people who came to church for that financial seminar once a year than the rest of the time. And I'm amazed how many people are, are in my opinion, I'm, I'm just surprised because I guess I've always been taught good principles of financial management and budgeting and things like that, and I'm surprised how many people are ignorant of those things and don't apply them. And that's the whole principle that Paul is making here is that you need to be diligent and you need to have a plan and a procedure for handling your finances, and that is part of wisdom, and that's laid out in many passages in the Proverbs. But giving is supposed to be part of that. You should decide how much, and it should be regular, and it should be designated as a part of your, of your regular budget. So giving should be done under the principle of proportionality and responsibility. Don't just give irresponsibly. The Macedonian church gave above and beyond their ability but they did not give what they did not have. Okay? They gave what they had, but they gave sacrificially. They took it away from some other area in the budget. Now, what I see happen with some people is they'll decide to 
to take it away from some other area of the budget, then when it comes time, they try to spend that money too. This is a problem in our uh, credit card society is we try to spend the same dollar five different ways. And we do that through the use of all those visa. Have you noticed how this year, since about the 1st of September, you get five or six new credit card offers in the mail every week? And the reason that started in September is because so that you would have a new credit card or five new credit cards with extended credit so that you could spend more money on Christmas this year than you did last year. So everybody's living way beyond their means. And one of the first things you need to do if you are wise in how you use your money is that you should never go beyond the end of the month with your credit card bills. You should pay everything off with what you make every year and never live beyond your, I mean every month, and never live beyond your means and bring everything under control. It does not honor God to live on the basis of extended credit. You need to use exercise responsibility in every arena of life, including that of money. So giving should be done under the principle of proportionality and responsibility. Point eight, giving should be planned out and part of your family budget. You should have an annual budget. Maybe if you don't know how to do that, it might be incumbent upon me to do the same thing that a former pastor did and have a little financial seminar once a year. But you should uh, have a family budget. Second Corinthians 9.5, Paul said, So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead, ahead of you, to you, and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, that the same might be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Notice what he's saying here. Skip down to 9.5. I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you. And by that he meant Titus and Timothy and his associates who were traveling with him. And he said, I'm going to send them ahead to help you organize your finances. Sounds like Paul's getting a little involved in areas that we would think you shouldn't. But he is making sure if you're going to make a decision as a congregation to support, uh, as they had back, as he mentioned in chapter 8, to support the, the uh, need in Israel, the, Jew, the Jewish believers in Israel, then we're going to help you organize it so you can fulfill your, carry out your decision. This previously promised bountiful gift. We're not going, he's not going to let them get away with promising a certain amount and then lapsing into irresponsibility and not fulfilling the promise. So he's going to send his team ahead to make sure they understand the right principles and how to do this on a regular basis. And not affected by covetousness. What does he mean by that? So that at the last minute you don't get greedy and reach your hand back into the box and take the money back. Now, the point that we see here is that even the carnal Corinthians had learned the importance of giving, but Paul wanted to make sure they didn't lapse back into carnality and, uh, and decide at the last minute not to carry out their pledge. See, I think there, I don't, I do not, I don't think I'm going to institute this, but there are some churches that have a pledge system. And I'm not against that philosophically. What they do is they say at the beginning of the year, in in all privacy, nobody puts their name on anything, so nobody knows how much they're going to give. But they'll write down on an envelope, we're going to give X amount of money this year. Then the church can sit down and say, okay, now we know how much money to expect to come in this year, and we can plan a budget accordingly. The problem we have is that we have no clue what anybody's going to give, and we just sort of grab a budget out of thin air. But philosophically, I don't have a problem with that. I do have a problem with the way some churches do it, where they make every, everybody puts their, their name down there, and I'm going to give so much. And, and I don't care who gives what, and I never want to know what the finances are in terms of who gives what. But I don't have, at least philosophically, a problem with that kind of a system, because I think that helps a church operate responsibly, not just guess okay, we're going to have so much money next year, hopefully we'll have forty or $50,000. So, so on that basis, we'll just grab this number out of the air and then we'll create a budget around that and, uh, and pray that the Lord supplies that, which is sort of how we operate. If you have a pledge system, then you don't know who's giving what, but you do at least have some idea 
of what is going to be there so you can create a responsible budget, just like any individual does. You know how much money you're going to make next year, and you can budget accordingly. But the church, we don't have a clue, so it's hard to budget. That's just an extra side point there for those of you who come out of those kind of backgrounds. But it seems like, like that's the scenario here in Corinth, that they have promised a certain amount, and in order to meet that amount, Paul is going to make sure they're organized and they can present this bountiful gift without letting their carnality get involved at the last minute. So point number eight, giving should be planned out, part of the family budget, and should be prioritized at the top. Point nine, the analogy that he gives, starting in verse six, is based on the agricultural economy of the day. Results in the spiritual life in terms of giving are proportional to the giving, but not necessarily in kind. Now, that's a very important concept at the end. Because you give in dollars doesn't mean that God will return it to you in dollars. There are a lot of different ways in which God supplies our needs, and giving is one way we supply needs to others, and it may come back to us many different ways. So Paul says in verse 6, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. If you're not, if your giving is tight, you're a tightwad in your spiritual giving, that then the blessing that returns to you, whether it's financial blessing, spiritual blessing, whatever arena it may be that God is going to return that blessing to you, that that blessing is going to be in proportion to your generosity. That's the principle. He who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Now, this is going to relate both to contingent blessings in time and contingent blessings in eternity. There are two categories of blessing. Well, really, several categories of blessing. First of all, let's review the concept. God is plus R. We are minus R. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. The righteousness of God cannot bless minus R. At the point of salvation, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God's perf- Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us so that we now have perfect righteousness. When God looks at that perfect righteousness at the point of salvation, He declares us just. That's the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Because we possess the righteousness of Christ, God is now free to bless us. So divine blessing can now flow down the grace pipeline to the righteousness of Christ. We are not blessed because of what we do or who we are. We are blessed always because of who God is and what He did through Jesus Christ. Now the first category of blessing is logistical grace blessing. This is the principle in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Previous verses, he talked about providing sustenance, food, shelter, clothing, used the illustration of the birds in the sky and how God takes care of them. And this is all logistical grace. So when you look at that verse, and it says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness is, that's talking about salvation. The only way we get God's righteousness is at the point of faith alone in Christ alone. And because of that, we have logistical grace. Then we have advanced grace blessings. Advanced grace blessings are based upon our capacity. It's not because we grow, God, or we go to church, or we do certain things that God blesses us. It is that as we grow and mature, we are then able to handle those blessings in the same way that you have children and Christmas is coming up and you're not going to give your five, six, or seven-year-old the keys to a Ferrari. No capacity. Now, it doesn't have anything to do with what he's done or what he hasn't done. It has everything to do with the fact that at the age of seven or at the age of 17 even, he may not have the capacity, a sense of responsibility to really utilize that gift properly and to give a 14, 15, 16-year-old uh, a car like that would probably ruin them. Might ruin the car too. 
In the same way, God only gives us these advanced blessings on the basis of our capacity. He is not going to bless us with things that would ruin us. Now, blessings come in... These blessings are then spoken of as contingent. They are contingent upon our spiritual growth. They are contingent upon our development of capacity for growth. Now, we have two categories of blessings. You have blessings in time and blessings in eternity. Now, we may give in time, and the restoration, the blessing that we receive, may come in eternity. And that will be based in proportion to the generosity of our giving in time. So, the the issue is always generosity... And to whatever degree we are generous and liberal with our financial resources, to that degree we have blessing, but not necessarily in kind. That's the trouble with the whole health and wealth doctrine, is they teach that if you give 10%, God will restore investment procedure. I'm going to give $100 to the Lord this week, and then He'll return it to me a hundredfold, and I'll make $10,000. So I'm going to go give all my money. And I had a gentleman in a Bible class I taught in Houston a number of years ago, and he had spent, taken almost $40,000 out of his savings and given that to one of these churches in the hopes that he would get all this money back. And it almost completely destroyed his faith in God and faith in the Scriptures before somebody finally got a hold of him and told him what was going on and how this had nothing to do with the Scriptures at all. So you always have to be aware of this, that giving and blessing is not necessarily in kind. But the principle is, he who sows sparingly shall reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Now keep this sowing and reaping in mind, because we're going to see this same analogy when we come back to our passage in Galatians 6, 7. So the, the analogy is that to the degree that we give, to that degree we receive Blessing. Point number 10. Grace giving is an expression of the volition of the believer that is not coerced through guilt motivation, emotional appeals, or other gimmicks such as bake sales, yard sales, auctions, bazaars, all kinds of things churches get involved in in order to produce money. If the money is not coming in as a result of people's response to the grace of God in their lives, I don't want it. If it's not coming in as a result of grace giving and or gratitude to God, if, it's, if it has to be manipulated in some way, then it shows that the people are not positive to God's Word, they are not growing spiritually, and they are not responsive to God's grace. In which case you need to shut the church down and go home. And that's what should have happened to 90% of the churches in this country. The only thing that keeps them going is a lot of legalistic things and gimmicks to get people to give money. And the people there don't care anything about God's grace anymore. So grace giving must always be an expression of the individual believer's volition. That's 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart. That tells us that giving is not something that is random. You need to think about it. You need to pray about it. You need to make a decision. And that becomes part of your annual budget and you fulfill it on a regular basis. The attitude that underlies it is the subject of the second half of verse 7. It's not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The emphasis there is on the mental attitude of the believer. He gives freely and happily because of what God has done in his life. The motivation always comes from the doctrine in the soul, not on the basis of emotion, not on the basis of impulsive feelings, but on the basis of sober contemplation, clear planning, and a joyful response to what God has done in the believer's life. Verse nine, Paul, verse 8 and 9, Paul continues to utilize the same analogy. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you. That means that you're not going to 
be able... Now, remember, I said earlier, responsibility is the principle. So we give, but we know that because we're involved in, the, in God, the plan of God, and that's part of our priesthood, that God is going to continue to supply our needs to make that possible. That's what he did with the Macedonian believers, and that's what he did with the Corinthian believers. That even though they gave, God still provided for their financial needs. So many people think, well, if I give, then I'm not going to be able to meet my financial obligations. And yet what this passage is saying is that God will make his grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. God will make it possible. God is not going to, God has not mandated how much we should give, but he has mandated that we give as part of our priesthood. And so God will make available that which we should give to the proportion that we should give it. Verse 9, as it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever, emphasizing the fact that all of our resources ultimately come from God, and so he will supply the ability. Verse 10, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, emphasizing the sovereign control of God over giving, he will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. In other words, God is going to supply what you need in the arena of giving so that you can fulfill your ministry responsibility in that area. This leads us to point 11. Grace giving emphasizes the individual believer's response to grace teaching. If people are truly positive, they will respond with generosity. If they are not, they won't. Notice how Paul uses words like liberality, overflowing, abundance. He is not talking about just giving a measly little 10%. He is talking about the abundant generosity that is the result of understanding grace. Remember, the issue is always faith rests. The issue is not how much we give. And then the last point I want to cover on grace giving, point number 12, grace giving demonstrates transformed priorities. Grace giving demonstrates transformed priorities. And I think for many of us, the hardest area, of the hardest arena for us to have transformed priorities in is in the arena of finances. Jesus makes a telling remark in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Now, in that passage, Jesus is not saying don't save money. He's not saying don't look to the future, don't provide for your retirement or anything like that. He is talking about priorities. Don't put the priority in accumulating personal wealth in this age. But lay up for yourselves, verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And the point is that in the arena of grace giving, that is a part of our spiritual responsibility. So when we are carrying out the function of our priesthood in giving, that has an impact in terms of our eternal reward and blessings for, all t- for time and for eternity. So the point that he is making is that if you are spending all of your effort and your priorities in accumulating personal wealth and possessions here on earth, that has temporal value. You could lose it tomorrow. But if your focus is on, on eternity, then as part of giving, when we're involved in the spiritual uh, responsibility of grace giving, then that has an impact on our spiritual life and blessing both in time and in eternity. And, of course, how we treat money tells more about our response to grace and our priorities in life than anything else. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart, that is, your thinking, be also. Let's turn back now to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Grace giving is the principle for the spiritual life, not legalism, not tithing, but grace giving. And grace-giving has an impact both in time and eternity and brings certain blessings into the believer's life. 
And just as Paul said in in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, that there is a proportional response to the degree that you give, to that degree you will be blessed, he uses that same illustration when we come to verse 7. The the command was in verse 6 to share all good things with the one who teaches. And then verse 7 he says, don't be deceived. Don't get caught up in arrogance. Remember, this is the problem with the Galatian church. They're caught up in legalism. They're caught up in arrogance. And the first part of the arrogant skill, or part of the arrogant skills, is self-deception. He says, God is not mocked. In other words, God is, it's an issue related to blasphemy of God when we think that we can get off without being involved in the spiritual gift of giving. He says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. That's the same principle that he outlines in 2 Corinthians 9. If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you sow abundantly, you reap abundantly. So there is a direct correlation between giving. That's what he means in context. It's talking about giving. Whatever you sow, this you will also reap. Verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh, in other words, if your priority is laying up treasures on the earth, the one who sows to the flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. In other words, if the point, if you are controlled by uh, materialism lust, if you're controlled by money lust, and that impacts the uh, or limits your giving, then Paul is saying you're sowing to the flesh. You're letting the sin nature control your life. You're sowing to the flesh, and the result of that will be corruption. As Jesus said, you lay up treasures in, on the earth. Thieves can break in and steal. Moth and rust destroy But the one, Paul says in verse 8, the one who sows to the Spirit, when you are filled with the Spirit, growing by means of the Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit, then as part of your spiritual life, you will be involved in grace-giving. And from that, that will increase your capacity for life. And what he is saying here, this is a very important thing to understand, says you'll reap eternal life. Now, we have studied this under the category of inheritance, that eternal life has two nuances in the Scripture. One has to do with time. This is unending life. The other has to do with quality. This is capacity. Spiritual maturity. Now, in many passages in Scripture, eternal life is given freely at no charge. For example, in Revelation chapter 21, anyone who comes to the water can drink freely and he will have eternal life. This is salvation. Salvation is not based on anything. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't give your way into heaven. Salvation is at no cost whatsoever. It is free. This has to do with unending eternal life in heaven. However, there is certain quality and capacity of life that comes as a result of spiritual growth, which is related to obedience to divine mandates under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. This develops capacity so that it is not simply unending life, but it is the depth and quality of life. And so we have to look at these passages, and when you have the phrase eternal life, ionos, zoe, listed, you have to discern whether we're talking about eternal life in the sense of salvation or we're talking about the quality of life. And here it is clear from the context that Paul is not saying that if you give to support the local church ministry, that's how you have eternal life in the sense of salvation. He is talking about the fact that as we carry out all of our responsibilities in the spiritual life, all of the mandates, the result is that we grow spiritually, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, and the result is that it increases our capacity for life and our, the joy and the inner happiness that we have as we mature in the spiritual life. So that's the point of verse 8. So verses 6 through 8 relate to giving in the life of the church in Galatia and that they are to be involved with supporting the local ministry and the pastor-teacher. Now we'll come back next time and we'll begin in verse 9 
and we will probably come close to concluding our study of Galatians in the next week or two with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity this morning to gather together and study your word. We pray that you would challenge us with these things. Father, as we have so many needs in this particular congregation, financial needs and needs to take care of this building, we just know that you will always take care of them, for you are a God of infinite resources. And just as you supply the hearers, you will supply the resources so that this ministry can continue. And we thank you for all of the many ways you have supplied and for your abundant grace in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.